Thank you so much, Ron. Enjoyed Ron singing. I want to tell you that I'm getting more out of this than about anybody. And uh, thank you for having me back. Um, really enjoying that. Good to see some friends from Marysville on here. And I've had uh, in each service different ones that have uh, been a part of my life across the years come in, and it's meant a lot to have them in the service. And uh, it's just been a very, very rich time for me. One of the things that you've done for me during uh, this camp meeting is you've prayed for me and uh, prayed for my wife a great deal, and I uh, thought maybe I might just take a moment before I begin to uh, just tell you what, uh, for those of you who haven't been in the prayer circles, what is it that's going on with her. Uh, last uh, summer, about this time, she was diagnosed with brain cancer. Uh, to put it in context, uh, she had been ill for, with MS for many years and uh, has had numerous surgeries and abdominal problems. She's had other health problems. It's just been quite a, quite a difficult, difficult challenge. And uh, in September of this past year, she uh, had uh, brain surgery where they, where they uh, went in, and uh, the, uh, the surgeon's name was Bubba. Uh, I don't think I'd ever let a surgeon named Bubba uh, cut my wife's head open before, especially when he came into the room before the surgery and said, are you ready for this? And she said, I think so. And he said, well, I've been studying up on it all morning. <laughs> And I've got a, my, I got a fresh drill from Lowe's, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> uh, he did a great surgery, but they were not able to get all of the uh, uh, tumor. Uh, it is not the worst kind of uh, uh, cancer that it could be, uh, but it is one that requires uh, ongoing uh, chemotherapy. And so she has been in that uh, for many months, and will be on that uh, through the end of this year. And uh, then to top it all off, she, uh, because she's unstable on her feet with the MS and the various troubles that she's had, she fell and broke her shoulder right here all the way through a few weeks ago, and uh, so she has not been able to do very much by herself. We had prayer, and you anointed uh, Sandy uh, Spain for her yesterday, and I'd love to tell you she's completely well. It's not that, but I've learned to take the blessings where I can uh, one of the persons that helps us with our housework and things of that nature, I asked her how her day was, and she said it's the best I've seen her in a long time. And she said she had a very good day, and uh, I uh, am grateful for that. So thank you for praying, and thank you for caring uh, so very much for us. I know you're probably not going to want me doing any more anointing around here. I, I was over here, and I put more oil on the floor and all over the altar than I got on anybody. And just to make sure that you didn't think it was a fluke, this morning I spilled my orange juice all over the table, and uh, in a nutshell, that's why I didn't go into the NBA or the NFL. I just uh, don't have those gifts. In fact, uh, I, Doris, uh, uh, Connie, and uh, different ones will be uh, uh, familiar with this uh, line of mine, but uh, growing up I had a dream of being 6'5", weighing 250 and playing football for the University of Notre Dame. The only goal I realized was the 250. <laughs> uh, just can't, uh, just can't uh, quite have those gifts. If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians. What rich ministry we've been having from John Juniman in uh, John 17. I brought a message in John 17, and that now has to be discarded. 
I wouldn't think of bringing that message <laughs> with the tremendous precision that he's bringing to the Scripture. And uh, to have uh, Garrett Cockrell bringing us uh, the Ephesians, I uh, brought a message from Ephesians. So in light of that, I'm going to discard that one, and we'll just go to 1 Corinthians and try to avoid uh, these. And uh, I'd like for you to look at 1 Corinthians 13 and also 1 Corinthians 3 with me for a few minutes. And uh, you've been sitting a while. Could we stand in honor of God's Word as we read it together? 1 Corinthians 13, and then we'll flip backwards uh, to the be more closer to the beginning of the letter, and we'll read uh, the first few verses of chapter 3. Beginning with, uh, actually with verse 31 of chapter 12, it says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease, and where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And then if you'll turn with me to chapter 3. And the first few verses there. Paul writes, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere humans? Father, thank you so much for this word. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to preach as only you can enable a person to do. Lord, I don't come with a seminar or a speech, 
But I come, Lord, ready to proclaim the word of God. And Lord, in order for that to happen, the Holy Spirit will have to be my source and you'll have to flow through me and give me the anointing that I need so that what comes out of my mouth and even the meditations in my heart will be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, flow through me and flow into all of our ears and give us ears to hear what you would say so that, Lord, we're encountering the Word of God and not merely the message of a human being. Lord, somehow in the mystery of what we call preaching, we pray, Lord, that a miracle would take place, that you would take the stammering lips of an individual and that you would somehow anoint them in such a way that we hear in between the words and through it all the Word of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was asked uh, one time, uh, not long ago actually, why does the Bible say that first, why does the Bible say that love is the greatest and why is love the more excellent way? But it was only the first part of the question. The second part of the question, the first question was just a pretext to ask the second part of the question. The second question was, why don't Christians love other people like the Bible says? Why is it the more excellent way, and why don't Christians seem to fulfill that more excellent way more often? Gandhi, the great revolutionary leader from India, was a friend of E. Stanley Jones. E. Stanley Jones spent a great deal of conversation with him. I'm a, I'm a reader after E. Stanley Jones. I've got a lot of his books. I've read them. I've poured through them. I, I, just, um, uh, if you, I would just recommend if you need good devotional writing, he's one of the best devotional writers you could find in one of the many writings that I've had probably more than once. The conversation between E. Stanley Jones and Gandhi comes through where Gandhi tells E. Stanley Jones, he says, I like your Jesus. I don't like your Christians. In fact, Gandhi told E. Stanley Jones that he was encountered by a missionary who was trying to press home to him the cause of Christ and, and to get him to convert. And finally, Gandhi said to the missionary, he said, I have three answers for you. The first one is, what you have told me is not new. The second one is, I don't believe it's true. But the third one was the real bad one. He said, it's not new, it's not true, but he said, it's not you. Gandhi rejected the gospel, and at least he rejected the presentations of it as far as we know, in part, because the presentation of it in the lives of Christians fell short of what the Bible seems to teach about what Christians are to be. In other words, you have the Bible standard and the standard by which most people live, and the gap seems to be so far apart sometimes that sometimes the message gets lost because it's true that the only gospel some people ever see is the gospel that confronts them in the person in which 
uh, is sharing or testifying to the experience. And there's a lot of answers for that, and some of them are understandable. After all, we are not perfect in performance, and we never shall be in this world, and we shouldn't expect that we'll always be flawless. Sometimes circumstances and things, uh, uh, it will not be an, ex an excuse, but it could be an explanation for why in a moment of time or two, we uh, sometimes uh, would have to go back and reverse gear and say, I'm sorry. I don't want to drive in reverse all the time, but I'm sure glad I got a reverse gear, and I can say I'm sorry when I need to because every person needs to. I don't check my uh, relationship with my wife in that I'm married to her all the time. I know that I'm married to her, and I love her with all my heart. But there are times that I have to say I'm sorry to my wife because every once in a while, because of circumstances or whatever, my humanity may come through, and I'll have to say, honey, I didn't mean it the way it sounded. Reverse gear. Love is being able to say that you're sorry. Well, the short answer is, is that we're human beings. The church is full of human beings. In fact, one person said the greatest proof for the existence of God is the church. Uh, no other organization run by so many inept uh, uh, people over such a long period of time could have possibly survived. It's the only way to explain 2,000 years of the history of the church is that we're human beings, and somehow it continues on forward, and that's because God is in it, and God is doing things in a miraculous way. The short answer is that some people are what we call EGRs, extra grace required people. Have you ever met any extra grace required people? We've all been the extra grace required people from time to time. I've been one, you've been one. EGRs are in every church. They just require a little bit more extra grace and just for the, uh, just for the uh, uh, underline that, my, my son can be that. Uh, Anthony is 24 years old and he has a developmental disability that makes uh, him uh, limited in his understanding, very immature in his emotional expression, very limited in vocabulary. He has a tendency to mimic what he hears, and what goes into his mind sometimes comes right out of his mouth, and you never know when it's going to happen, and it can happen at any time. For example, when I was first uh, invited to one of the nice homes in the church that we're pastoring now in Indiana, and the dear woman who invited us there had, uh, had all the place settings just perfectly and all the food just out there, just nice. And she had made a delicious stew with all kinds of ingredients in it. And Anthony took a bite and he went. <laughs> and he said, that is fake food. <laughs> he had never had mushrooms inside of a stew like that before, and the consistency of that was more than he could take. Well, welcome to the Valley Mission Church of the Nazarene <laughs> pastor. I, it was hard to get past that. Eventually, they understood that. Anthony has been an EGR all the way through. In fact, camp meeting, we had a few EGR moments Anthony went to camp meeting with the children's department one year. Emily, his oldest sister, came out. Emily came out stomping her feet. She said, I'm never going to camp meeting again. I hate camp meeting. Camp meeting is the worst. I'll never go back to camp meeting again. We said, honey, what in the world is wrong? She said, well, the children's worker was trying to teach the lesson, and they were teaching, and Anthony kept saying, oh, are you boring me? Are you boring me? <laughs> and uh, humiliated her and embarrassed her, and I, I guess I saw that at our, one of our general assemblies one time, you know, the big arena, and they got these TV screens. You don't know whether to look at the tiny person directly or you look at the big screen. You have a tendency to look at the big screen. 
The service is going on and on and on. The preacher was just going, going, going. He's one of our general superintendents. He kept emphasizing the point and emphasizing the point. Finally, Anthony says right out loud where everybody can hear it, can I just change the channel? <laughs> I just wish sometimes I could change the channel like that. EGRs. We've all been EGRs. And then there's apes. Have you ever had any apes in your church? Against practically everything? No matter, what is, no matter what is suggested, they're against it. Uh, we've probably been apes from time to time. I've been an ape before, and uh, maybe you have, but you don't want to be an ape and an EGR all the time. And sometimes that makes it challenging. That's why we need love. That's why we need patience. We need to bear with one another. It's just a part of, uh, no church is perfect because uh, it's made of people, and people are people wherever you go. In fact, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go there, because if you try to go there, you'll either not be perfect or they won't let you in. I mean, there's no way that we can have a perfect church. We're human beings. Somebody said, the Lord created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day, and on the eighth day, he started answering complaints in the church. <laughs> Maybe folks want to serve God but many folks just want to serve him as advisors. You know, we just have, want to give opinions about things. Our world is filled with criticism and opinions that are barbed and laced sometimes with uh, sarcasm and put-downs and and, and dismissals that are so hateful and so discouraging. And, and if you're not careful, you know, one of the things, I have to tell you, one of the things that has been the most refreshing to me this week about camp meeting, there's no TV in my room. And I'm missing all that vitriol and all that stuff that sometimes I feel like I just have to know what's going on because things change so fast, and yet you watch it and you just feel like you need a bath after a while. I'm getting a bath this week. We need to recognize the world the way it is, and isn't there, shouldn't there be a place where we can go where it's not like that? The body of Christ is a place that ought to not be like that in the church. The worst singer I ever heard sing a song in the church sang a song I'll never forget. Everything living needs love. Did you ever hear that song? Everything living needs love. They spell it out. I said, L, L, O, O, V, V. She just went on and on. And I thought, this is the worst song I've ever heard in my life. And yet it is one of the songs I have never forgotten in all my life. Everything living needs love. People need love. We need love. We're made for love. I'm going to take this uh, question I was asked and answer it in two parts. Why is love the more excellent way? Why is it the greatest? And secondly, why don't more Christians express this kind of love? Why is love the greatest and more excellent way? It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, as we read, I will show you the more excellent way. And then it gives us that beautiful description, love is patient and kind, and all of the various descriptions that's there. And then it says in verse 13, and now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest because it's the Jesus way. 
Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in all the law and the prophets? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and the others just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, upon these two commandments, all the prophets and the law hang, and, and they're all bound together in that. Loving God and loving others is the central definition of the content of what should happen in the transformed life. It's the Jesus way. It's the more excellent way. Jesus goes further than even our neighbor in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do not do to those, uh, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. He says, if you love only those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do that. And if if you greet your brothers only, what reward have you? Even tax collectors do that. In other words, if you only love the people who love you back and you only love the people who are part of your tribe, you only love the kind of people that think like we do, then after all, we're no different than the rest of the world. Let me tell you, the Fox crowd, they love each other. The MSNBC crowd, they love each other. The problem is, is that if you're in one crowd and the other crowd, they hate each other's guts. And the reality is, we can't find ourselves in that space as Christians. So who is our neighbor? Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, anyone in need, including people different than ourselves, ethnicity, religion, even politics. Who are we to love according to the Bible? Everyone, everywhere, at all times. But the problem is we can know the right answer to the Sunday school question, we love everyone and we love everybody in general, but when it comes down to the particulars, there are some people, frankly, we just don't love no matter how much you've put the label on it otherwise or explain it away. Who are we to love? People who are different than we are. The Black Lives Matter crowd and protesters, we are to love them. The police who enforce the law and protect us, we're to love them. Those who uh, represent the LGBTQ community, we are to love them. The adulterer and the adulteress, that person who has even hurt us personally, knowingly or unknowingly, we are to love them. I was preaching at a camp meeting uh, not that long ago and I had preached a message, and uh, at the end of the altar service, a woman came forward to me, and she was absolutely shaking and sobbing. She said, my 18-year-old son has just come out of the closet and said he's gay. And then she breathed deep and said she's moved in, he's moved in with his boyfriend, who is an older man, about 20-some years older than he is, and he's 18. And then she just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed because she loves her son. She needed someone to talk to. She needed someone to support her in her new reality. She needed someone just to stand with her. And this is what she said. I can't go to my pastor I said, well, why not? She said, I've heard too many of his jokes and too many things he said even from the pulpit. 
And I've heard how he and the men laugh and scorn. And he said, I'm humiliated. She said, I'm humiliated. And I know how they think. And I just can't do it. And I thought to myself, God help us. God help me as a pastor. We can take a clear stand on Scripture without creating an environment that is mean and hurtful and hateful. We can know where we stand and still be compassionate and merciful and kind. And we can still love everybody regardless of who they are or what they've done. Why would we want to create uh, an environment that closes the door to hope, shuts down communication, and shuts the door of welcome on those who might someday come around and say, I'd like to at least hear some good news. God help us to be the church that is love and mercy and kindness and grace. Don't misunderstand me. We need to have a high standard of what the Bible teaches, and we need to be truthful in what it teaches. We need to speak the truth. We hold a high standard. But we also, with that high standard, must retain a manifest abundance of love, grace, and mercy. We must speak the truth, but we must do it in love. Jesus, it says, he was full of grace and truth. He embodied them both perfectly. They were balanced in who he was. And that's the kind of people he wants to be, us to be. Standards without love become dead legalism, pharisaism, ungodliness, and meanness. Compassion and love without any holy standards becomes weak, enablement, permissive, and sometimes apostasy. The two have to be brought together, they have to be held together, and the only way they're held together is when the Spirit of God comes into our heart and life and integrates us into Christ so that we're able to balance that grace and truth peace into our own hearts and lives. So as John so beautifully said the other night, the flow of God out of our lives is His balance of truth and love, grace and peace, grace and, uh, 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 grace and truth. Jesus and the woman caught in adultery are a great example of this. The woman is dragged before Jesus in the, temple, in the temple outer courts. She has been through a terrible situation. She has been caught in the act of adultery. The Pharisees and scribes bring this woman before Jesus in the crowd. They say, the law of Moses says we are to stone such a woman, but what do you say? If he says, go ahead and stone her, he doesn't love the way he's been saying. If he doesn't say, follow the law of Moses, then he's not holding the standard. Jesus does neither one. He writes down on the ground and starts writing a message. We don't know what he wrote, but it's the only place the Bible records that Jesus wrote anything down. And it was in sand. It's probably a good thing. We'd probably worship whatever he wrote if we ever had it. He's out there writing it in the sand and it's eventually gonna go away. But somehow or another, what he wrote in the sand had a, an impact because one by one, those who were around bringing condemnation started dropping their stones and leaving the scene from the oldest to the youngest until finally, Finally, they were all gone. Then Jesus turns to the woman and he says, who are they that condemn you? She looks around and she says, no one, sir. He said, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Notice it does not say he's without the first stone. Uh, he was about to uh, sin, cast the first stone, and then end it there is the way some quote it. 
It says, he is without sin, cast the first stone. They drop the stones and they go away. She said, he says, I don't condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more, not go and sin some more. It is not a permissive thing. He's holding a standard and at the same time he's expressing tremendous love. Love that is Christ-like. Love that is the more excellent way. In 1 Corinthians 13, you'll notice in these verses, if you just want to take a look at it again with me just quickly, 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses, we learn that love is the essential test of our faith. Without it, everything else really becomes insignificant. If I speak in tongues of men or angels but don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It means absolutely nothing. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom mysteries and all knowledge, that is, if I'm a deep thinker and I have great theological insights and I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, if I give my body to the flames, if I give myself to hardship but I don't have love, folks, you and I are nothing. It is the essential test. Why is it the greatest? Why is it the most important? It is the essential test of what our faith is really all about. Love, secondly, in verses four through seven, is the most Christ-like test of our faith. Verses four to seven, it's, it, love is patient, kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, not easily angered. Uh, love doesn't delight in evil, rejoice in the truth. As you read through there, you discover that, that these are the characteristics of Jesus. This is exactly uh, who he is. Love is the most Christ-like of all. The, the most Christ-like test of our faith. And then thirdly, why is it the most excellent way and, and the greatest way? It's, it's the most durable test of our faith. In verses 8 through 13, we, we hear how these various gifts will someday find their fulfillment and their purpose and drop off. And then three things will be left, faith, hope, and love. These three yet remain, these three great gifts that you must have. And yet he says, faith, as important as it is, one day will become sight. Faith will not uh, uh, be there forever. One day, faith will be fulfilled. And one day, hope, as important as it is, hope will be fulfilled. Faith will be sight. Hope will be fulfilled. But there's one that still remains, one that's the greatest, one is more excellent, and that is because love is is the more excellent way because love is participation in the nature of God himself. Love is who he is, and we will continue to love on into eternity. In fact, it'll get deeper and broader and richer. The more participation in the, the divine being we have, the greater our love. And as we participate in that, the more like him we become. And love is something we will always have. Love was before the creation, as we heard from our missionary. It was before the creation of the Trinity. And love will be after the world is at its end. And love will continue because of the relationships involved in the wonderful kingdom of God. Love is the most excellent way, and it's the greatest. But why is it that people don't love each other as the Bible says? So oftentimes there's a characteristic that, uh, in fact, frankly, uh, if you ask people in this day and age who are not a part of the evangelical scene, not a part of our circles, what they think of evangelicals, our esteem in public is about as low as it can go. You ask them to characterize, not fair, not fair, but I'm just saying, if you ask them to characterize what their image of it is, they'll say that they think that we're angry, that we're mean, we're red-faced, we're against everything, that, that, that's the image they're getting. Now, some of that is false. Some of that is, is, but the reality is there's enough of it going on that is a problem 
that there's, a, there's enough truth there to make us uncomfortable. And here is why we really need to open our eyes. We need to love. The problem with Christians is that we know what the Bible says, but there's something stopping us in many cases. The answer to our lack of love in this passage as Christians is found implicitly in this letter. We need to read the letter as a whole. You do know this is a letter. And sometimes in our studies, and even the way it's divided with chapter and verses, and the way we do our devotions, if you're like me, I love to read a chapter or two and a section. It was just a natural way to read a portion and stop. Read a chapter or two and stop. And the only problem is, and we go to Sunday school, and we, we hear a little verse, and we have a lesson on that. We go and hear a sermon, and it's a little ver- section on this. The only problem is, sometimes we lack the full sense of what's being going on. I loved last night in the missionary service, the big canvas of what's going on. Sometimes atomizing scripture and separating it all out is very helpful as we zero in to very specific things. But other times we need to have the bigger picture in view. And and when it comes to the context of a letter, it's pretty important to realize this is a letter. You don't read the portion of it, make a theology about it without understanding the whole flow of that letter. And in this letter, some people have read it and read the last chapters and concluded that Corinth is the epitome of a great spiritual church because they're practicing spiritual gifts. They have all of the gifts in operation. Every one of them are in operation in Corinth. They must be a great spiritual church. The only problem with that is it totally lacks the context of what the letter is all about. In chapter three, verse, in chapter three, the first few verses, here we see who Paul's writing to and he characterizes it much differently. Brothers and sisters, he says that to Christians, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. But he's not saying they're not Christians. He says, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. You are still worldly, yet you are babes, infants in Christ. You're in Christ. You're brothers and sisters. You are believers. In fact, there are other places we could go, but just because of the context and proximity, something else we're going to point out here in a moment. We just want to emphasize it there. They're Christian people, but he says explicitly in this portion who he is writing to, they are not spirit-filled people. It is possible to manifest spiritual gifts of all kinds and not be a spirit-filled person. That is proven in this text. He says, I wish I could address you as spiritual, pneumatikoi, which is the pneuma is the spirit, and pneumatikoi is the plural for that spiritual ones. I wish you were spiritual people, but I can address you as that. You are sarkikoi. You are fleshly people. You are worldly people. You are still operating in the world's mindset. You're still selfish. You're still self concerned and self-governed, you're still operating out of, a, out of a concern that shows that Jesus has not become Lord of every part of your life. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4, I, I, I want to say, yes, Christians in Christ, but still carnal. And somehow in that, it seems obvious that the Apostle Paul thinks this isn't normal. This is not the way it should be. You're still this way. 
I mean, Paul gave himself 18 months in Corinth. Paul, there's no better discipler. There's nobody, there's nobody they could have had any better to tell him the truth. But somehow when he's writing this letter, he says, it just disappoints me. I'm getting these reports. You're still not getting it. You're still not living in the spirit. You're still living in a worldly way. This should not be. Notice the symptoms of this that are throughout the letter. They can't tolerate solid food. They don't want, apparently, strong doctrinal teaching. There are en- there's envy and strife and divisions. They're divided over the leadership. Notice he says in verse 3, are you not carnal? Are you not li- behaving like mere men? Even though you've been forgiven, you're, you're not operating in the spirit. He, and if you go through 1 Corinthians, the first chapters of it, and you take a quick perusal of it, you will see that it, the results of this kind of characteristic being dominant in the church, it's catastrophic for the, the, the quality of the church life. Somebody says, I want to be a part of a New Testament church. I do too, but not Corinth. Because Corinth, not only are they not spiritual, but it says, and and operating flesh, but just look at the catalog of things Paul's addressing here. Divisions over leadership, pride and arrogance and lack of humility. As you read the chapters, each one through this letter, confusion about how to handle immorality in the church, what to do about it. Marital and sexual dysfunction and family breakup, neglect of the, neglecting the needs of others, misconduct and irreverence in worship, lawsuits among believers, fighting over worship, failure to consider others before themselves. This is the epitome of what it means when the selfish, sinful nature is in control. It is all about me and my way, and I've got to have it a certain way. And they're all fighting with each other because the, the, the carnal mind works against a community in every way. It cannot submit to the law of God. It cannot uh, experience full fellowship with the Father. And it also damages and destroys fellowship one with another. They are still carnal. That spirit we are born with that remains after conversion must be dealt with in some kind of a significant way. And apparently there are still pockets of carnal rebellion going on in their spirit. And so easy to fall into in this atmosphere to become a part of the problem. I, I, how many of you ever read, I'm sure you did, uh, Streams in the Desert? Wasn't that a great devotional? Uh, Mrs., uh, was it Calman uh, that wrote that? And, and uh, she has this little parable in there. I wanted to share it with you. This is a parable. Like, think about this. Just think about this. One morning, long before the carpenter was to appear in his shop, The carpenter's tools decided that they needed to have a conference to settle some of the problems which were steadily arising in their work. The first tool called to take that chair was Brother Hammer. The meeting informed him that he was to leave because he was too noisy in his work. But he said, if I am to leave this carpenter shop, Brother Gimlet must go too. He's so insignificant and he makes such a little impression on other people. Little Brother Gimlet rose to his feet and said, All right then, but Brother Screw must go also. You have to turn him around and around again and again to get him going anywhere. It seems so futile. Brother Screw then said, If you wish, I will go, but Brother Plain must leave as well. All his work is on the surface. There's no depth to it at all. To this, Brother Plain replied, Well, Brother Rule... We'll have to withdraw also if, if I do, for he's always measuring other folks as though he were the only one who was right. 
Brother Rule then complained against Brother Sandpaper and said, I just don't care. He's rougher than he ought to be, and he's always rubbing people the wrong way. In the midst of this discussion, the carpenter of Nazareth walked in earlier than they expected. He had some uh, come to perform his work for the day, and he put on his apron and went over to the bench to make a pulpit. He employed the screw, the gimlet, the sandpaper, the saw, the hammer, the plane, and all the other tools. And the day's work was over, and the pulpit was finished. And Brother Saw arose and said, Brothers, I perceive that all of us are laborers together with God. Then Mrs. Kalman writes, do there happen to be any people within your circle of acquaintances who do not perform their duties just the way you think they should? Perhaps it would be well to think twice before making any criticism or finding any fault with any one of God's instruments of service who is furthering his kingdom here on earth. If a selfish judgment were made against one of God's necessary tools and that tool was removed from his work, who would be the one causing God's work to be delayed? I thought that was just a, a, an instance. It's just a good caution for us. Why are Christians not loving as they perhaps should be many times? It's because they are still carnal. That which is unlike Jesus has been allowed to persist and remain, and it's not as it should be. Still babes, still babes in Christ, still carnal. What is the solution to this? The problem is a lack of Christ-like love, which arises when we're still carnal. We need as Christians to admit that. I don't think that there's probably any help for us at all, regardless of where we need to go spiritually, if we don't admit that there is a need in our lives when there's something on us that is, that is, we've got to say, this is a need in my life. We have to admit it. And in many cases, we might have to admit we're carnal before we could ever experience the solution. If you go to uh, people who are in addictions, and have problems, the, one of the things they'll tell you is the first thing towards healing and response is you have to recognize what the problem is and be willing to own it. To solve the problem, to be pneumaticoi, we, we need to submit ourselves to what we describe as entire sanctification. Now here's where I'm gonna ask you to put your mind, and I know you're, you're probably, uh, uh, you know, you're thinking I'm not sure where he's gonna find this, but, but just bear with me for a minute. We need to be entirely sanctified. Now look at chapter one, verse two. Paul is writing to these people who are babes in Christ, who are still carnal, and they ought not to still be that way. And here he says in verse two, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. That is, it's written not only to them, but to us, it is written to Christians, it is written to those Christians who are all called to be holy, and he says, and who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Pastor, I thought you just said that what we need is we need to submit to be sanctified. And that is not what I said. It is, it is very interesting how this is here. I said we need to submit to an entire sanctification. 
Entire sanctification, part of the reason why we call it entire sanctification is because there is more to sanctification than the moment of entire sanctification. Sanctification is a big word, not just because it's five syllables. I'm not afraid of the word. I'm not afraid of how long it is. Uh, It's a big word in the salvation plan. It's really not completely correct to say I'm saved and sanctified because it's kind of like saying I'm saved and I'm saved. Sanctification is something that begins at the moment of conversion. At conversion, as he begins to move into our heart, he transforms our character. Holiness begins to take root. He begins to change who we are. We're regenerated. Things begin to change. Holiness starts and begins at conversion. And sanctification is what God does in us. Justification, on the other hand, salvation is a big thing. Justification and sanctification. Justification is when we're converted. Justification is just as if we hadn't sinned. Justification is purchased for us by Christ on the cross just uh, so that we can be forgiven of all of our sins. It's just as if we'd never sinned. It's converting grace. It's what Christ does for us. But sanctifying grace is what God does in us. It's what he is actively doing in the transforming and the renewing. It's not a legal change of categories, saved and lost and saved. It's not guilty and now I'm not guilty. Sanctification is now that I've been declared not guilty, God is automatically and even now changing my character and changing who I am on the inside. And so we are sanctified the moment we are beginning to, we are converted. The sanctification work of God begins. And that's part of the reason why, not the only reason why, we say entire sanctification because there is a sanctification that's initial, that's beginning, and then there is full sanctification where we're fully surrendered to God and that sanctifying work does a complete work, not addressing the sins we committed, but addressing the sinfulness out of which those sins were committed, that sinfulness that remains even after conversion that we didn't even know was a part of the picture until after we're saved. And now that we're saved, we start saying, well, we want the Lord to be in charge, but there's some problems with me. And I start worrying about those and concerned about that. And I want Jesus to have control of this area of my life and that. So we need to be concerned now about him dealing with these various issues in our life. What is entire sanctification? Entire sanctification is that moment when God gets so much of us that he fully integrates who he is and with us so that our lives are not compartmentalized. It's not like my spiritual life is here and my my secular life is here. My job is over here. My school life is over here. No, all of it now comes under the authority of God. All of it is integrated in my spiritual life and everything becomes spiritual. You say, I'm spiritual when I come to church. I'm, I'm doing my spiritual business when I read my Bible. Let me tell you, when you're entirely sanctified, spiritual business is every moment of every day, every breath, everything we do reflects upon the spiritual life because it's all fully integrated and the pockets of rebellion that were there are removed when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It does not mean we, receive, we didn't receive the Holy Spirit at conversion. We did receive the Holy Spirit at conversion. You're not saved without the Holy Spirit. That's why sanctification begins. He's the sanctifying, sanctifying Spirit. So what does it mean? We are born of the Spirit, but we need to be filled with the Spirit. Does it mean we got half the Spirit when we're converted or a portion of the Spirit when we're converted and now we get the rest of the Spirit? No, the Holy Spirit is a person. You get all of the Spirit when you're converted. You don't get part of the Spirit. You get everything. You get all the promises of God. You get everything he has for you at conversion. The difference is 
is that there are pockets within you and me that he does not yet have. And when those are surrendered fully to him and we are fully yielded to him, now the entirety of it all flows through us. So it's not a portion of him that changes, it's the portions of us. God now has the entire person to work with. No wonder when Paul prayed, he said, and the very God of peace sanctify you through and through, verily, entirely, holy. It's full integration of your entire life into the things of God. And he said, he'll preserve you blameless, your body, your soul, uh, your, your spirit, every part of you can be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, What is the greatest commandment in all the law? He says, you're to love your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. You don't separate all of that. Well, I'm only gonna love the Lord with my strength. I'm only gonna love, no, they didn't even think that way. It has to be the whole package. We're fully integrated beings. And our love has to be fully integrated. The Spirit of God integrates his love and his life into us and enables us to live a completely different kind of life. I don't know if any of you were there, but uh, Gary Chapman, who was uh, the, uh, not Gary Chapman, Gary Smalley, who's the relationships guru and evangelicalism died a couple of years ago, wrote a lot of books on family relationships and marriage and as a speaker and wonderful, wonderful speaker. I heard him speak at a big event in Cincinnati and it was an amazing event. This is what he said. Listen to this. He's a Calvinist, by the way. Graduate of Wheaton College, good, great, university, great college, loves the Lord. But, but so his, his thinking on it might not have been uh, formed in the same way theologically we are, but, but experientially, listen to this. Gary Smalley said, I was on the top of the world. He said, I was in graduate school at Wheaton College. He said, I had a beautiful wife, a beautiful wife, he said, I, I'm doing well in school, I'm speaking, I'm having opportunities for ministry. He said, this is just great. The whole world is before me. I, my, I'm on my way to heaven, my sins are forgiven, I'm called to the ministry, I'm having the time of my life. And then it was revealed to him, probably through a nudging of his spouse a little bit and some circumstances, and the Holy Spirit began to speak to him and said, Gary, we got a problem. What is it, Lord? We need a funeral. What do you mean we need a funeral? Well, Gary, you're, you're not, uh, you may not be fully aware of this, but you're the center of your own world. Gary, you want to do a lot of good things. You want to serve me, and I'm glad for that, but, but, but you seem to think that the whole world revolves around you. You don't love your wife quite the way that I would want you to, and, and you, don't, you don't consider others. It's almost as if you're the only show in town. It's almost as if Gary Smalley is the all in all, end of all, for everything. He says, every decision you make is all about Gary Smalley. He said, well, what do I do? He said, we need to have a funeral. He said, well, what do I do? He said, let's have a funeral. About that time, the casket comes rolling in. And the music is going do, 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 do. And they put this casket up on the platform, do, 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 do. And Gary Smalley says, I had to have a funeral. And he took out his pocketbook, his date book. And he said, the Lord told him, 
said, Gary, how you spend your time, you do a lot of good things, but it's all about you. You don't consider others. You're not considering your wife. You're not considering uh, 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 what other people, you are, it's all about you. Your whole schedule is about you. I want you to give me that. I want you to die to that. I want you to give me charge of your calendar. And so he took the calendar book and he threw it in the casket. He said, Gary, we, we still, we gotta have a funeral. He said, okay, what do I do? Give me your pocketbook. Gary, look at that pocketbook. Look at, the, look at the entries on here. Your spending patterns, you do a lot of good things. You give money and you're tithing. He said, but, but if you really look at it, your discretionary income, it's spent completely selfishly about Gary Smalley. It's the things you wanna do, the things you like to do. It's all about you. He said, you haven't given me full control of that. He said, that's not kingdom priorities reflected in that. He said, that's just the bare minimum that's reflected in that. He said, I want control of that. He said, oh. Okay, Lord, okay, I'll have a funeral of that. He throws that into the casket. On and on he goes. Takes an ear, big old ear, brings out a big old ear. He says, you don't listen very good. Preachers are notorious for that. We're not good listeners. You don't listen. You have to be in charge. You have to be the one speaking. You don't listen to your mate. The way would be so helpful for her if you did. And you're not listening to some people that could help you a lot. He says, I want you to give me your attention and your ears and to start listening and to humble yourself and learn. And so he took that ear and he threw it down in the casket. I don't know how many things they had. He said, I got everything I could think of in that casket. And he said, you know what? I still had to have a funeral. And Gary Smalley climbed over the side of that casket and stood inside of it and he said, I had to die to Gary Smalley and let Jesus be Lord without a rifle in my heart. I died to self and allowed him to fill me and the love of God began to transform my heart and life and close the gap between what I found in the scriptures and what I found in myself. Love is the greatest, the most excellent way. And his ministry in his life brought untold blessings, exponential all the way. You know what Jesus said? He says, if anybody be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does that mean? My wife has brain cancer. She has multiple sclerosis, a broken shoulder, congestive heart failure. It's been tough. The devil would probably say, that's your cross, but that isn't my cross. The cross <laughs> is not things exterior. To, the cross is I must die to being a self-centered, self-absorbed person and let the love of God fill me to overflow so that I can, doesn't make me perfect, doesn't make me flawed, but I must die to Paul Whiteford. The cross is very perfect. You know what they thought when they heard that? You know they heard that about take up your cross? 
They didn't hear, well, you're gonna have problems and that's gonna be a cross. You're gonna have these little crosses in your life, you know, it's gonna be a cross. That's not what they heard. Jesus was going to the cross. He's gonna die on the cross. And when he said that, he's saying, you're gonna have to die with me. You're gonna have to surrender 100%. I heard a man at a Promise Keepers event one time. He said, NFL player, this is what he said. His name was Joe White. He said, I was a Christian. He said, I knew I was going to heaven. I love the Lord. And then I got leukemia. And at first, the pity party, and at first, this is my cross, and all those things. But the Lord started using that condition to tell me I had an issue. I had not fully been integrated and fully, I wasn't 100% integrated and and surrendered to him. I never knew that. And now that I'm facing my own mortality, I'm really concerned about that. And there's some things, I needed to surrender. And he said, I read Galatians 2.20, where Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And he said, I realized Although I had a John 3.16 experience and was genuinely converted, I needed a Galatians 2.20 experience and I needed to be crucified with Christ. He said, how many of you men out there at this Promise Keepers event would say that you've had a John 3.16 experience? You ask him to forgive you of your sins and he forgave you of all your sins. You know your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life and you're going to heaven and you've been trying to serve him. But the truth is, Self is still in control. Your priorities aren't fully integrated under God. And the truth is, you've never had a Galatians 2.20 experience. You know what we need? We need a John 3.16 experience and a Galatians 2.20 experience. How many of you would like to have a Galatians 2.20 experience? And men came out of the rafters and flooded the front of that auditorium. And they said, that is my need. There's so much more to being a disciple than getting in. It's being all in. It's being integrated so that he has my complete being and can flow into my life and into others. Shall we stand together? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth that can help us in this area of love. Lord, there are the very best of saints here today, but Lord, where this truth finds its place is in my life is that sometimes it's so easy to let the priorities, whatever they are, begin to become uh, something that is different than what we know. And Lord, perhaps today there are some of us who would just like to say, Lord Jesus, right where I am, I want you to be all in all. I want you to help me. I want you to forgive me if I've taken my own uh, self as uh, the center too often. But Lord, perhaps there's somebody who'd say, I've had a John 3.16 experience. What I really need is to take up my cross and follow him. I need a Galatians 2.20. I need to have a funeral. And I'm unashamed to admit the fact that while I'm a Christian, I could sure use a baptism in the Holy Spirit's love to help me love the way the Bible teaches I should.
not because I'm able to do it, but because he's in me, helping me to live, living through me to others. The altar's open. If you'd like to pray, perhaps you'll want to pray where you are. Perhaps you'll just want to be encouraged by the fact that there is a solution to the love need of our world. Let's sing together. God bless you as you respond. This is number 87. We'll do the first two verses. They really do speak directly to this beautiful message today. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of life's treasures, Jesus thy perfect likeness to wear. Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art. Come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness, stand thine own image deep on my heart. Oh, to be like thee, full of compassion, loving, forgiving, tender and kind, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting, seeking the Jesus, we thank you for your invitation to be transformed by your love that will be forever in us and among us and through us. God, where there is conviction in our hearts today, we pray that we might be able to, to turn towards your love, to allow your love to bring transformation deep within. Where, God, you've exposed the, the tension of worldliness that remains in us, carnality in us, God. Bring us to a place of surrendering to your love, that your love might flow more freely through us. God, thank you that your invitation is not just to be saved that we might spend eternity with you, 
but that you are saving us thoroughly and completely now, that we could experience now the fullness of your love both in us and flowing through us. God, help us to walk in that love today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.